0: Oh, I am very curious to find out what the result is for our hot question of the day today. So as you heard in the news, and as you're going to be hearing on the show today, there's this new report out by Mercer International. They essentially are a worldwide human resources company that measures kind of the attractiveness of cities all over the world so that uh, helps companies attract and hire talent to those places. And when they did their quality of living survey, they found according to them, that Vancouver has the best quality of living in North America by far and third best in the world. So for our hot question of the day today, we have to ask you, do you feel like if you live in Vancouver, or let's say Metro Vancouver, do you feel like you are living in one of the best cities in the world? Do you say yes, Vancouver's great? Or no, we've got way too many problems. And I know right away people go, really best city in the world with how expensive it is here, with all the struggles that we have. They didn't look at that. They didn't look at the cost of things. They looked at the availability of things. They looked at, oh, there's housing that is available. There are good schools that are available. There are parks that are available. There is public transit that is available. So they didn't look at those issues that we complain about on a daily basis. They were just looking at whether or not this stuff is there. And according to them, by that checklist, by that, you know, marker, Vancouver is the third best city in the world for quality of living. We tied with Wellington, New Zealand. We are going to be talking more about that a little bit later. But for now, that's our hot question of the day today. Do you feel like you're living in one of the best cities in the world? Yes, we're great. No, we have too many problems. You can go to simisarah 980 on Twitter to cast your vote on that. You can give us a call with your thoughts. Call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That's 331-2899. Or you could drop me an email, Simi at W.com. I know, a little bit unusual to be hearing some of that right now, but we thought if we have Claire Newell, got to let people know we're going to be talking about travel right now. And Claire is with us because I know there's a lot of disruption going on out there about flights. As we heard in the news today, there is no point to try to call Air Canada. The airline has been overwhelmed with phone calls because of the yesterday grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX 8s and 9s. They're trying to arrange different flights. Some are going to have to be cancelled. And remember, they've got 24 of these planes in their fleet, whereas WestJet has 13, Sunwing has four. So when you're calling right now, a lot of people are essentially just getting the message that uh, call volume is just overwhelming, and they're not even going to put people on hold. So let's find out what's going on out there. Uh, Claire Noll joins us now for more on this. Hi, Claire.
1: Hi there, Simi. Yeah, there's a, a
0: lot of worry right now. Okay, so what are you hearing from people that, that they can't even get through at this point?
1: Right. So, what I'm advising people is to go to the My Booking section of the airline that they're booked with. Most of the information for people leaving within the next 24 hours is actually posted already. There's just this lag in getting the information to the customers and to the travel agents. So, um, you're going to expect delays in trying to reach the call centers, but the information for at least flights within 24 hours should be there. If they're not, that's when you should be calling the airline.
0: Right, so a lot of people
1: just automatically want to talk to somebody. That's right. A lot of people do want to talk to someone. I am recommending this though, Simi. A lot of people who have something that they're connecting to, and I know that there's a group, for example, that are connecting with a cruise that is leaving out of LA. They were given the uh, option to go on a flight. It was actually... Vancouver to Toronto and then to LA really like crossing the country twice (laughs) gotta do what you gotta do right gotta do what you gotta do but they chose not to do that so they the airlines are allowing people to do a full refund so in this case they did that and then rebooked themselves on a flight that did work for them but for the majority of people, I'm recommending that you wait to see what the airline offers. And then if it doesn't work for you, that's when that you would take the, the full refund or the ability to rebook without fees as long as space is available.
0: Right. Are people actually just cancelling their vacations entirely, Claire, or are they being pretty patient about this?
1: People are being really patient about this. The really good news was from Sunwing. The majority of their uh, uh, flights have already been rescheduled right through until the end of March. So their flights to Cancun, Puerto Vallarta, Los Cabos, uh, Ixtapa, Mazatlan, Veradero, Cuba, Cayo Santa Maria, all have been rebooked. And they just did a straight swap. So the 737 MAX was replaced by a 737-800. They're essentially leaving the same times, the same days. Even some people who booked their seat assignments, they're in the same seats.
0: Oh, that's impressive. But I guess part of the problem for like Air Canada and WestJet is that some of the planes that they might be bringing back into service are either smaller or larger than what they already had.
1: That's right. Um, So there were people who were leaving to Hawaii last night. Uh, I have heard that there were over 700 that were leaving with Air Canada and they were all reprotected on a different aircraft, a wide body aircraft. So definitely they weren't getting the seats that they paid for. But in this case, just people have to remember that the juggling of flights, like the magnitude of this logistical nightmare, it means that people will fly at different times than they originally booked. Some may have stopovers versus nonstop flights. Um, some may not get the seats, of course, that they paid for. And others will be put on airlines that are partner airlines, So WestJet has lots of partners, uh, American Airlines, for example, and Air Canada has United and a whole host of other partners. So that is going to be communicated in a literally hour-by-hour basis. They're worried about the tens of thousands of people that have to be rebooked today. Right. Have you heard of any problems out of the United States,
0: though? Because I know Southwest and American Airlines were flying these planes as well.
1: Right. So if you're scheduled to be on those or connect to those, then you've got added problems. So with these types of situations, you've got multiple airlines involved. More often than not, I'm recommending you do get a full refund and rebook on the airlines that you know has space and gets you where you need to be at the times you need to be there.
0: Okay, so patience is the word. I find what's interesting about this is that people are, like I haven't heard a lot of complaints from people because I think they were nervous about flying on one of those planes to begin with.
1: Oh, no question. You know, we were telling people, uh, be patient when it's spring break anyway, kids in tow, long lineups across the board. But in this case, because it's unprecedented, we've never seen an entire fleet of a model of aircraft be grounded. And um, scheduling, like the shuffling to this magnitude, I think people are just so grateful they're going to get to have their vacation not canceled.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That is so true, so true. Okay, so how much longer do we think this is going to be a problem? Another couple of days?
1: I think that the scheduling is going to be a problem at least for another couple of weeks, Emmy. Oh, so they're gonna. Right now, they're dealing with it on a hour by hour, day by day basis. They're not even dealing with Sunday yet. I think they're dealing with the next seventy two hours priority. With, of course, the. Most important being the ones leading in the next 24 hours. And this is going to, we're going to see this impact right through, uh, right through spring break because they, they have to juggle all sorts of people. And until that max eight is cleared to fly again, they are going to be dealing with it. It's also a, an odd time of the year because Simi, you and I have talked so for so many years. You know that this is the time of year when the yeah. the sun destinations start to wind down yeah. and Europe starts to come into play. So the end of March and mid, into mid-April, this is when they're juggling aircraft anyway. Yeah. So this is so going I, to definitely be an did upcoming hear, problem. Just, yep, go ahead. Yeah. I did hear this morning that Sunwing, uh, their Sunday departures... From Vancouver to Cancun, April seventh until May the twelfth, they've actually canceled. So people who are booked on those, they they will be hearing from their travel agent very shortly. Uh, They're probably juggled either a day or two because they they fly so often to Cancun. Right. Um, The flights, their trips won't be canceled, but definitely the day they're leaving will be. Interesting. Okay, so people are going to have to be flexible for the next sounds like couple of months.
0: Well, uh, I would say at least the next month for sure. Interesting. Okay, so we'll have to find out how this goes. Claire, thank you. Thank you, Simi. That is Claire Nill, president of Travel Best Bets. And I think her advice stands over the last couple of days. And that is be patient. It's the kind of story that you just know is going to generate a lot of headlines, a lot of discussion today. It's this new report uh, by the global consulting firm Mercer that suggests Vancouver has the best quality of living in North America and third best in the entire world. How did we do it? How did we make it to the top of that list? Well, apparently because of safety, of crime, low crime, that is, the environment, access to good education, and even, believe it or not, access to housing. I know. I found that hard to believe, too. So in a few moments, we're going to talk to you about this subject, get your thoughts on it, uh, to want to know why, if you feel like you're living in one of the best cities of the world. But first, let's find out more about today's report. And for that, we turn to Gordon Frost, who is a partner and career business leader for Mercer Canada. Well, Gordon, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. First of all, what is
2: Mercer? So Mercer is a global uh, human resources consulting firm.
0: Ah, okay. So then do you do this to provide information to companies all over the world?
2: Exactly. So we do this work um, to provide information to companies all over the world, as you just said, around really it's more broadly around how they attract, retain, and engage talent. But clearly, um, from a moving talent around the world perspective or attracting the best talent, understanding the quality of living in different cities is a really important part of that.
0: All right. So how do you measure the quality of living?
2: Yeah, so we look at a number of different elements of quality of living, everything ranging for from, you know, the availability of core things like quality housing, quality education, you know, things like safe drinking water, um, quality public transit, even things like things that we really take for granted in Canada, but having a stable banking system, having, you know, freedom of the press, having stable government. You know, these are things that that we, you know, have in Canada and that we're lucky to have, but not every part of the world does. And so as you're moving people around the world, that does become a key consideration.
0: Right. Okay. So how did Canada do on this? Because it sounds like as a country, we did pretty well.
2: Yeah. So Canada did great. And, you know, this is the 21st year that we've done this survey. And the Canadian cities always do really, really, really well. Um, so, you know, Vancouver has ranked third in the world, but, but many of the Canadian cities rank, you know, in or close to the top 20.
0: And how did Vancouver do specifically?
2: So so Vancouver came third in the world, uh, tied with uh, Wellington, New Zealand, um, and uh, just a little bit behind Vienna, Austria, which was in the first place. Wow. But, um. Vancouver does great, yeah.
0: I, I think a lot of people would be surprised because you talked about like quality of housing here and housing is such a huge, hot issue. Uh, it would, I think it would surprise people here that we did well on that metric.
2: Yeah, you know, and it's interesting. We have a lot of discussions around this. Um, there's an issue between quality of, li- uh, of housing and cost of housing or quality of living and cost of living. And so we actually have two separate studies that we do at Mercer because we try and pull those apart a little bit to look at first... What's the quality of living? Because that is a key element. Um, and it's really, th- that's what people care about from, a, you know, will my family be safe? Will my kids go to a good school? You know, is there public security? Do I need to be worried if I'm walking around at night? Um, and then the cost of living clearly is important to people. But I think a lot of employers say, well, I can, I can compensate for changes in cost of living if I move someone from one city to another. But quality is, is, more, is, is clearly tangible, but yeah. often harder to just fixed by, by throwing more money at it.
0: Right. So quality of living essentially is how you, I guess, feel about where you live?
2: Yeah. So it's, it's how you feel about where you live, but it's even some really tangible stuff like is there good, good availability of quality housing, for instance? Because, again, I think we take that for granted in a lot of Canada, uh, but in some parts of the world there, there isn't. Um, do you need to have, like, would you need to live in a gated community as you might in some parts of the world in Canada for security reasons? you know, that's not usually a problem. Is there good availability of, as I said earlier, you know, quality public schools that your kids can go to, or recreational facilities for your kids? Um, You know, even things like, you know, is the drinking water safe, which again, we take for granted, but in some parts of the world, you know, is a real concern.
0: Interesting. And how did the United States do on this?
2: so the the u s does quite well as well, but um, the u s cities do not do as well as Canadian cities, so the top ranked u s city was San Francisco uh, in the thirty fourth position. Um, all of the Canadian cities on the on the ranking did better than that, Wow, um, which is I think a point of pride yeah
0: so Gordon, can you also run me through the other cities and places in the top ten
2: Sure, so all of the other cities aside from Vancouver are European cities, Vienna is ranked first, then Zurich. Uh, Vancouver comes after that. Um, Then Munich, Wellington, uh, Dusseldorf and Frankfurt in Germany, Um, Copenhagen in Denmark, and then Geneva and Basel in Switzerland. And I do need to correct myself. I do know that New Zealand is not part of Europe. <laughs> so there's two there's two non-European cities oh, in the top ten.
0: Boy, New Zealand, <laughs> no respect. That always seems to happen. Yeah. Uh but okay, so that's interesting then. So what do you think it is that those cities have that other cities
3: don't?
2: Yeah, so it's interesting because if you look at what um what the rankings really are based on, and they're they're all very, very close, but some of the key differences are Um, investments in things like uh, public transit um, which I think Europe does more so than perhaps the US or other parts of North America and I think Vancouver is well regarded from that perspective so congestion is not a problem as much the other thing I would note is that you you'll see all of those cities are more like mid-sized to large cities they're not the super large cities like London Paris you know Tokyo all of those and same thing in the US New York Um, you know, San Francisco, they don't do as well because usually the really large ones do come with more congestion, more pollution, potentially higher crime rates. Um, And so I feel like the mid-sized cities of which there's a lot in Europe and then in Canada also seem to do better for for some of those reasons.
0: Right. So too big is a problem. Too small is a problem. But medium is just right.
2: Yeah. Medium is just right. Yeah. And the other thing that I would say for that, that Vancouver really does well on compared to some of the other Canadian cities is just the climate. Right. So that's one of the things they look at also is climate um, risk of natural disaster, things like that. So in Canada, we we have a low risk of natural disaster, generally speaking. And then the climate in Vancouver, you know, is much more temperate, you know, similar to some of the other cities that I just talked about.
0: Right. So it's funny because people here, Gordon, would probably look at this and go, yeah, you know, it's a struggle every single day to afford to live here. But I guess what this is for is, for attracting people here, and this will show that, oh, other people outside of Vancouver think it's a very attractive place.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think on the cost side, there is no question that cost of housing in particular is is high in Vancouver, you know, relative to other parts in Canada for sure. Um, I think one of the interesting points is, you know, as I referenced, there is a cost of living survey as well. And while Vancouver comes out, you know, high from a Canadian perspective, As I'm sure you can imagine, it's not nearly at the same level as a Singapore, Tokyo, Hong Kong, New York, London. Um, So I think, you know, even though cost of housing in Vancouver is an issue that we need to be thoughtful about, when we look at all the different aspects of cost, quality, you know, safety, security, um, Canadian cities do really well.
0: All right. Sounds good. Well, Gordon, thanks so much for joining us.
2: It's a pleasure. Have a great day.
0: Gordon Frost, partner and career business leader for Mercer Canada. It is time now for Science with Simi. And, you know, this week we've been hearing a lot about some parents who very likely wish that they hadn't made some bad decisions, like allegedly paying people to take their children's college admission test for them. Yeah, very, very bad idea. Now, as for the rest of us, it may not be that egregious, but I'm sure we've made some bad decisions now and again. So is there a way to prevent ourselves from doing that? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about this week with the help of Jason Tetro, author of The Germ Code and The Germ Files and host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast on Curious Cast. Hi, Jason.
4: Hello there.
0: So we're talking bad decisions. Can we really stop ourselves from doing this?
4: Well, for, in order to be able to do that, we got to first off figure out um, whether or not we can identify how we're doing it, right? And at the University of Arizona, um, th- they've managed to figure out four particular factors that we can look at to try and find out whether or not we can monitor when a person is about to make a bad decision. Um, now, some of this is going to sound probably familiar, uh, like unequal judging of evidence. Who doesn't do that, Right. Um, reliance on previous experiences. Uh, That's something none of us do. Uh, Bias, (laughs) which is not surprising. Charles, I see you out there. And of course, there's neuronal noise. Now, this is a little bit different. This really is when the brain loses its ability to focus. So you know how you're distracted when you're trying to do something? Uh, That's what neuronal noise is.
0: Okay. So just if we're about to make a bad decision, does that amp up?
4: Yeah. So that's the thing that was really interesting was when they started looking at how they were able to um, discern or, or differentiate between someone who's making a good decision and a bad decision, what they found was that that unequal judging of evidence could be taken over because of the neuronal noise. In other words, As you become more distracted, you start to unequally rely on judgments that are not accurate or based on evidence. And this is the really cool thing, is that when that happened, your pupils dilated. They were actually able to find out how to see it in a person. So when someone is making a bad decision, it's almost like they're opening up their brains with their eyes to let the bad info flow in. It was just... Unbelievable, and this could theoretically leave us with the opportunity to have a different kind of lie detector test or a different kind of, um, you're about to make a bad decision test, unlike Thor, who unfortunately still regrets what he did.
0: I like the way you throw these other random references into
4: this. Well, no, stuff. but did you not see the new trailer? I mean, none yes. of this would have happened if it wasn't for Thor.
0: Okay. We, we're digressing here. We're going in a different... We could debate that kind of stuff on another day. <laughs> but talking about this one. So this this is serious for us because we you know we may have to make a serious decision like what to do about our health or morally, ethically. We make these decisions and you're saying there's a lot of other noise back there that helps to influence us.
4: Yeah, and, and I mean, just to be serious, we have to realize that there's a lot of noise that does come out, especially when it comes to decisions about our health. Uh, and when that happens, uh, we may end up starting to believe things that, again, are not based on evidence. And this week uh, on the Super Awesome Science Show, we kind of cover that a little by looking at people who focus on that distraction element as opposed to evidence. Uh, we call them quacks. What? Yeah, um, back in the 16th century, um, there, there had to be some kind of way to describe these individuals who were using yelling, screaming, juggling acts as opposed to hardcore evidence. And so the Dutch came up with the term quacksalver, which essentially means you talk about cures like a duck. Because honestly, if you look at it from an outside perspective, when you see what these people are doing, they literally look like ducks quacking on a, on a lake.
0: Oh, okay. So that's, that's where quackery comes from.
4: Yeah, it 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 has become an actual term that became part of the lexicon back in the 17th century, and we've just been using it ever since. Uh, now, when you hear about quacks, you you start thinking about okay, well, maybe there are some names that are coming up. Maybe there are some TV shows that Oprah used to you know really yes. support that come up uh and, and yes, there is that because you know th- these people don't rely on the evidence; they rely on you know the show right mm-hmm. and and unfortunately, there are other names out there who are really really taking that to the next level. So how are we going to be able to help people to recognize the difference between evidence and a quack? Well, on the show, we end up talking with two people who are incredibly good at being able to do this. Um, our first guest is uh, Jonathan Jerry. He's actually at the university-funded, the only university-funded office for science communication. That's what he tells me, at McGill <laughs> University, um, and and he sort of knows exactly how these peddlers uh, of quackery and and also pseudoscience work, and and also what they promise. Just just take a listen.
3: They will give you easy answers to complicated questions. And we're coming in with the science, and the science is usually very nuanced. It's very tentative. You know, this is what we know right now, but it could change in a few years. These are animal studies, they're not they're not great. We can't say that it works in humans. And this kind of this kind of nuance, these kinds of details uh, are, are a bit of a harder sell.
0: That is so true, isn't it, though, Jason? Because what people want is the easy answer. They want to believe that that green coffee bean extract is going to cure everything.
4: Oh, yeah. Uh, and you have to drink it the other way as opposed to the normal way. Right? Yeah. So yeah. We, we, yeah. But anyway, moving on. Uh, the, the idea, though, is that when you start seeing things that seem a little bit obtuse or perhaps maybe don't make sense, then there's a good likelihood that it's not based on evidence. The problem is, is when you are talking about evidence, it's kind of boring. And as a result, you know, people like Jonathan use uh, comedy and satire. And our next guest, uh, Darren McKee, essentially has just been using longevity. Uh, He's part of a podcast called The Reality Check. And and they've been, you know, busting myths for over 500 episodes. And about 15 to 20% of that is just quackery. And now, thankfully, he's learned a lot about that. And has some ideas as to how we might actually be able to um, get past that. Hmm. Just just listen to what he has to say. As I age, I learned that you, unfortunately, can't just listen to people. I kind of wish you could, because then it'd be a lot easier. But the more you learn, you realize some people just don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) Not because they're intentionally deceptive, just because they may not know themselves. So I've just been exposed to enough people saying things. You're like, well, maybe that's not
5: true.
0: That is so interesting because really I think the internet is part of this problem too, isn't it, Jason? Because everybody can present themselves as an authority of something on the internet.
4: Oh, yeah, exactly. And I think that's really the problem is that when you start seeing people who claim to be experts and who are pointing the spotlight on themselves as opposed to the evidence, uh, it makes it very difficult for you to think, hmm, maybe this person is really trying to sell me something that's good. I think the most uh, hilarious one I've seen was someone was actually showing Instagram photos of her going through a um, – using those coffee beans in the other oh, way. Oh, boy and i was just thinking why are you doing this and yet this person was getting all sorts of likes all sorts of reads all sorts of comments and you're just thinking wow
0: this is the goop just, thing this is the goop mentality
4: this this is exactly what it's all about and we just need to be able to find ways to you know go out there be entertaining have a lot of fun and and you know fight not necessarily fight but find a way to to distract away from the quacks distractions, if you will, so that we can bring evidence back. And that's really what the Super Awesome Science Show was all about. And I really hope that people listen to it. Uh, You know, come on to Apple Podcasts, uh, Google it, you can read the show notes. And uh, I just I would just love for you to hear this particular show.
0: Sounds good. Thank you so much, Jason.
4: It was a pleasure. Take care.
0: It's Jason Tetro, author of The Germ Code and the Germ Files, and as you heard, host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast on Curious Cast. Well, a big announcement yesterday from the provincial government that they are changing provincial building height limits so that 12 story wood construction buildings will now be allowed. That is up from six stories. So, Premier John Horgan made that announcement at a BC plant near Penticton that specializes in timber building construction.
5: We're not waiting uh, for the rest of the country to get here. We already know that the product that we're building or that we're creating here is fire resistant. We know that we can build faster, and we know that it's better for the environment.
0: Okay, we wanted to learn more about this, obviously. So joining us now to enlighten us, hopefully, is Dr. John Innes, who's Dean of the Faculty of Forestry at UBC. Dr. Innes, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. How significant is this announcement?
5: I think it's very important for the BC forest sector. We would like to see timber being used as much as possible. And with the restrictions on trade down south and increasing restrictions to China, we want to see as much wood being used here in the province as possible.
0: Now, what would this be replacing? Like, does that mean that we'd see less concrete in buildings and more timber?
5: Absolutely. Concrete and steel. Um, we, we have the option of using a much more sustainable material, which is wood, and we have developed the technology to enable us to do that.
0: Yeah, how fire safe is that? I heard the Premier mention that, but how does that work?
5: There's been a lot of work done on the fire safety of mass timber. So this is like, I I think the easiest way to explain it would be if you're setting a campfire, you don't use logs. You use small bits of wood. Um, So what we find is that when there is a fire with um, these large timber structures, it chars on the outside, but then the fire progresses very, very slowly. And we know the rate of char, and so firefighters can actually calculate what the risk is when they go into a building based on how long the fire has been burning.
0: Now, that's a big change in how we used to think, right?
5: Absolutely. I mean, everyone used to think that wood burns very easily. But uh, wood does burn, um, but in small quantities. When we have a house fire here in BC with a wood frame building, it's because we're using much smaller pieces of timber, which are much more easily burnt. Then the mass timber, which is very solid, very large, and as I said, more like a log.
0: Right. So then is this what is being produced now in order to build these
5: buildings? Uh, it's what's being produced for the larger buildings, yes. We have a variety of engineered wood products, uh, the most important of which is CLT, or cross-laminated timber. And that is a much more adaptable material. We also have other materials like glulam timber. Um, that we can use, which are the beams rather than the large sheets of wood. And there are huge advantages, actually, of using this material in terms of construction rates, the amount of waste that's left at a site, and also the safety of the buildings.
0: Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like, what are the advantages if people decide that this is the way to go?
5: Well, for a start, it's very, very quick. Um, When you're building, say, a 12-story building, which is what's been now permitted here in British Columbia, Um, We can put up buildings at a much faster rate than a traditional building. If we look at the 18-story wooden building that UBC put up at Brock Commons, it was being constructed at a rate of about one floor a week. Um, So it was incredibly fast compared with traditional building methods. And that has a lot of advantages in terms of the cost. Uh, The other big advantage is that there's very, very little waste. So essentially, you're taking the panels, you're putting them in place, and that's it. There's, there's no excess wood to get rid of. There's no excess building materials to get rid of. It's all there, and um, it's a much more sustainable project as a result.
0: Right. You mentioned Brock Commons at uh, UBC. Is, is that still the tallest mass timber building in the world?
5: Not anymore. It's been overtaken by, I believe, two or three other buildings now in Europe.
0: So then that's really changed just in the last couple of years, hasn't it?
5: Absolutely. Uh, And it was the largest building, um, but people are now realizing that they can go higher and higher with these buildings and do so safely. And so more and more uh, companies are putting them up in different parts of the world.
0: Is there an incentive for them to do that? Like you said, there's cost as well, but is it just one of those things that perhaps will become more trendy?
5: It is. There's definitely a trendy factor to it. Um, But there's also a number of other advantages. The cost is is an advantage. The sustainability of the building is an advantage. There are quite a lot of health benefits associated with being in buildings with a lot of uh, exposed wood. Um, So we've done a lot of research just looking at the general wellness of occupants of of buildings. And these wooden buildings seem to um, be much more favorable to people than more traditional forms of building. Why You've is probably that? heard of sick sick building syndrome, for example. Yeah. Um, we don't actually know the, re- the, the full reasons. We're actually, there's a lot of work is going on on that at the moment to try and understand it. But we also know that, you know, just going out into green nature is good for you compared with going out into a concrete or uh, urban, you know, uh, fully urban uh, situation. So it, there, there's probably psychological benefits, but we think there may be also um, non-psychological benefits are important.
0: Right. So what would we notice? Like what, the average person walking into a building like this, how would it be different from say a concrete building?
5: The, the most important thing I think is, is having exposed wood. If you, if you have exposed wood, um, people tend to look at it and we have a natural affinity towards it. Well, I can say that as a Dean of forestry, but I think the average person also has a natural affinity, um, even if you are not associated with the forest industry in any way. People like wood. Um, You can come into our building here on campus and people are blown away just by the wood everywhere. Um, It's much more attractive than concrete or, or steel. And what about sound? Sound is actually an issue that we are, again, there's research that has been going on. And obviously, if you... I and mean, if you live in a house with wooden floors, you, you hear when people are walking around up above you. Um, what we have been working on is the CLT, uh, this is the cross laminated timber, and then combining it with um, a thin layer of concrete. And that actually works incredibly well at damping sound. Okay,
0: so then this is just going to get more and more popular. So this is, does it look like it's going to be good for the BC industry?
5: I think the industry is very positive about it. They see it as uh, increasing the demand for wood products locally, which is something that is really good. It also actually is resulting in more and more industries um, being established to process our wood in a much higher level than has been the case in the past. And that means more jobs and more employment opportunities.
0: That was one of the criticisms in the past, though, wasn't it, Dr. Ennis, is that we were producing all this timber, but we were shipping it offshore to be finished
5: somewhere else. Yes, that's definitely a criticism, and it still is a criticism. People are very skeptical about uh, sending logs abroad, although there are sound reasons for doing that. Um, If we just convert into two-by-fours, again, there's uh, a lot of criticism of that. The ultimate would be if we could establish a major furniture industry here because that is where we see the most value added. But having these tall wood buildings is actually a step towards that greater use of the wood and getting more value from BC Wood and keeping that value here in British Columbia.
0: Interesting. So you say with all the steel and aluminum tariffs, this is a good time for this. Absolutely. Interesting. Dr. Innes, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. That is Dr. John Innes, the Dean of the Faculty of Forestry at UBC. Is it possible that we might be able to use a simple blood test to stay ahead of breast cancer well that's what some bc cancer researchers are hoping they're hoping that that will help us monitor the disease and guide doctors in treatment early on Uh, this was part of the announcement that researchers at bc cancer made today so we wanted to hear and learn more about it dr stephen chia is with us chair of the breast cancer tumor group at bc cancer and dr chia thank you for joining us thank you for having me what was the announcement this morning
3: it was really a privilege to be able to be part of an announcement today that the Konkone Fa- Family Foundation is donating $1.2 million to BC Cancer for an initiative to develop, standardize, uh, and applicability of what we call circulating tumor DNA in breast cancer and potentially other malignancies, as you said, in ways of an earlier monitoring and assessment of responsiveness to treatment.
0: Okay, what does that mean, though? Is so that like a, so, like we do with prostate cancer, like a blood test that would help us determine if there is breast cancer?
3: so in a in a similar manner is a blood test we now have the technological ability to do sequencing off of fragments of dna in the blood so we've known for several years but only because of the sensitivity of the analytics of sequencing can we now actually detect and sequence small fragments of dna that come from the tumor in the blood so now we have a actual very sensitive ability to detect changes in the blood from the D, from the dna and also understand what are the actual dna changes rather than just detecting there's a cell present or there's a marker like PSA as they have in prostate cancer.
0: Right. So does it matter how big the tumor is or how far along the cancer is?
3: It's a good question. The the studies at this point do show that you have a much higher likelihood of being able to detect it in the blood with larger tumors or more advanced stage. So, a lot of the work is being done in that area. Obviously, we want to be able to over time be able to use an assay that can be used in earlier detection to help to individualize somebody and say, "Listen, there is no detectable DNA in the blood, perhaps we don't need any more drug treatment or any drug treatment at all, or if in the other scenario there is detectable, further treatment might be needed, and you can actually quantify if it falls that how much treatment more is needed.
0: Right. So then is the idea for this, Dr. Chia, the idea that uh, cancer, if it exists in the body, will leave some kind of fingerprint?
3: Correct. Uh, and right now that fingerprint is cells dying off or in a, whatever process that they, they, they actually do have blood, a DNA leaked from the cell into the blood that we can capture and analyze.:
0: Right. So up until now, though, what has been the, what's the difference with what we do now? Like you actually had to find the actual cancerous
3: cell. So, it's a good question. So, right now, there is no blood test that can standardly detect that there is the presence of cancer cells in the blood. There's indirect manners, uh, tumor markers that we use, for instance, pH, uh, PSA and in prostate cancer that are markers that can be shed from tumor cells into the blood, Um, but nothing that analyzes the actual genomic or DNA changes at such a high level where you can actually understand what might be driving the cancer, and again, potentially then match certain drugs to what's driving the cancer.
0: That's so interesting. So is this like the future of cancer research?
3: This is the present in the future, and, and this investment uh, and donation from the Konkani Foundation will, will really uh, prime the pump for us to do it in a, in a provincial manner across our province and do it in actual cancer patients as part of a research study to understand if there is a correlation with what we detect, how much we detect in relation to how well they do on treatment.
0: Interesting. So that, it means that you can like tailor the cancer treatment as well, right?
3: Absolutely correct. You can tailor how much and potentially what type of treatment. Those are the goals. They're not demonstrated as of yet, but that's part of the initiative to demonstrate that. And and we're not the only ones, of course, in the world doing this. Others are, but we, I think, from a, a larger population in a real world experience, are one of the largest, definitely largest in Canada doing this.
0: Yeah, are we getting closer to that ability to just individually target the actual cancer cells as opposed to trying to kill everything?
3: Um, Well, I think this has the ability for us to detect if there's a presence of DNA in the blood and what are the molecular alterations, then the ability to actually selectively only target cancer cells with specific drugs. I mean, that's obviously the holy grail, and there are some drugs that achieve that pretty well. I wouldn't say 100%. Um, but yeah, that there, you need both of them. You need to be able to identify and match, and then you also need the specific treatments that spare normal cells.
0: Dr. Chia, what is the frustrating aspect of being a cancer researcher? Because, you know, we've been fighting, fighting, fighting this disease, but it always seems to be like 10 steps ahead of us. <laughs>
3: The most frustrating thing is those damn cancer cells. Um, And in fact, because we've learned over time that the cancer cells will adapt to treatments, develop pathways or alterations for resistance, change different pathways that then circumvent what we're blocking or trying to inhibit. And so absolutely, we, I think, in the past have underestimated how adaptable cancer cells are to the treatment pressures.
0: Okay, so then you said other areas in the world are working on this. Like, what kind of work, and where would you say some of the big research is being done?
3: Um, Well, I think this type of technology is now uh, well-established in terms of knowledge that it can be done. There's different assays that are being applied to the the blood collected. Uh, A lot of the work that's being done is is being done as part of... um, uh, drug trials where blood is collected uh, and seeing if it can monitor how, if it, if it, you know, deta- uh, if it can actually predict responsiveness to treatment earlier than we can with standard imaging. So they're being done internationally. Um, there's many individual, you know, ha- uh, high research uh, centers, whether it be Memorial Sloan Kettering, New York, Harvard, MD Anderson, that are doing it in their institution. But for one of the advantages in BC Cancer is that we provide care for our whole population in this province, and so we. Have have the ability to look at this in a, in a larger population base that, that spans the spectrum of different ethnicities and standard care treatments.
0: Okay. So then ideally with the announcement made today, you would see this as what, the first step down that road for improving treatment?
3: I think this is the first step. There's a lot of groundwork that needs to be done to establish the assay, the sensitivity of the assay, the reproducibility, the legwork of understanding the bioinformatics. We want to be able to develop the platform that we can do the tests quickly, reliably produce real-time results and be able to do that across wherever the cancer patient is being treated. We collect the blood, send it to a central lab, and then do the standardized outputs with the bioinformatics that we can turn it back down, turn it back around in a, in a very quick manner.
0: Right, and so this is just focusing on breast cancer, but is there a particular reason for that, that, uh, that we're focused on breast cancer with this?
3: Well, part of the, the focus on breast cancer has to do with uh, both the, the, the research expertise we have with Dr. as head of the Molecular Breast Cancer Program here in British Columbia and his uh, wor- world-renowned um, sort of work in the journal of Breast Cancer. Part of it has to do with our, our clinical platforms of, of clinical expertise and care in breast cancer and really the Konkani Foundation through, um, uh, uh, through their foundation and individuals in there, there's a, a linkage to an individual with breast cancer and really, um, you know, brings it to the forefront for them.
0: So interesting. So, Thank you so much for your time on this.
3: All right. Thank you for it.
0: That's Dr. Stephen Chia, chair of the Breast Cancer Tumor Group at BC Cancer.